when the finished product came out, and man, from a kid growing up, you ask anybody in the world, have you ever been in a movie or have you ever been seen with Bugs Bunny? <laughs> Regardless of how big or small a role is, yeah. I'm in a movie that's going to play on forever. Bugs Bunny has been living on for 50 plus years. He's going to continue to live on. <laughs> and kids, when I'm dead and gone, are going to watch this Bugs Bunny movie. That's the biggest achievement that's going to last forever. They still may talk about the blindfold. They still may talk about 50 points. But being in a movie with Bugs Bunny, huge, huge, huge. I have kids. I don't even tell them I'm in the movie. I just let them watch the movie because they want to watch. They see <laughs> Michael Jordan. They see Bugs Bunny. They want to watch the movie. I pop up in the movie and I am the greatest dad in the world <laughs> because I'm in a movie with Bugs Bunny. It doesn't get any better than that. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23 and of course Johnny goes nuts. So we're all getting first time thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, he made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time and I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 59. Thanks for joining me. Stay up to date with my monthly email newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes, future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and much more. Simply visit inallairness.com slash news. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Cedric Sabalas to the show. Thanks to Paul Corliss and the Retired Players Association team for the assist. Check out legendsofbasketball.com for more. In this conversation, we cover a multitude of topics relating to Sed's great playing career and much more. Also, prepare to unlearn most of what you know about the 1991 NBA Slam Dunk Contest. Some fascinating truths will be revealed. Towards the end of the episode, I'll share one of the greatest podcast reviews of all time. You can add yours by visiting inallairness.com slash review. Show notes for this episode, including plenty of links to the topics we've discussed in today's chat, are at inallairness.com slash 59. Now, onto the show. My guest today is just the second Hawaiian-born NBA player ever. He is an 11-year veteran of the league. He was named an All-Star in 1995 and famously won the 1992 Slam Dunk Competition. Cedric Sabalas, thanks for joining me. No problem, man. I appreciate you having me. Oh, it's great to be able to chat with you today. Now, before we actually get into all things basketball, I know that you have a deep love of music, which goes back to your early years. Do you mind just briefly touching on where that actually first came from? Wow, it started when I was a kid. So, you know, uh, just the love of music. I started DJing as a kid and, you know, spinning records, scratching the whole hip hop era. And it just kind of, you know, everybody's dream is to be on stage in front of 30,000 people with a microphone in your hand. So I just had the opportunity to, you know, with the popularity from basketball to do so. And, and kind of just ran with it. Uh, you know, I had the opportunity to uh, record an album to raise money for charity with the basketball's best kept secret. Uh, a lot of other players were on there. Shaquille O'Neal, Gary Payton, Jason Kidd, uh, a lot of other talented, uh, basketball players who just to try to help out and, you know, help our communities, help the world out, you know, uh, raise some funds for a great cause to try to live our dreams. Who do you think was the most musically minded of those NBA players that you worked with? Well, obviously myself. <laughs> Aside from yourself, of course. <laughs> Second to myself, I would probably go Dana Barrels. He was pretty good with that. And uh, 
also uh obviously Shaq he sold millions and millions of albums so he's uh, uh definitely a person who you know musically inclined good stuff now uh researching for our chat today and I'm sure I read this somewhere in amongst the research I believe that you were a ball boy at the 1984 LA Olympics is that fact or fiction yeah that's true um I had an opportunity to you know participate in the Olympics didn't you know I didn't apply the job for being a ball boy they just kind of placed you where you were at. Uh, I didn't say I played basketball or I love basketball or even like watching it. I just, you know, put in an application to, you know, to help out with the Olympics and they just designated people, I guess, from where they where they lived and between uh, USC and the sports arena and, and UCLA. Uh, that's where I had my job. So I had the opportunity to go back and forth. Uh, it's funny because, you know, Michael doesn't remember, uh, but Wayman Tisdale, he's not with us anymore, but he remembered me as well as a couple of other guys too a great little tidbit there that I discovered before we chatted today so that's good to know after starring at Ventura College where you averaged close to 30 points a game and, and over 10 rebounds a game you played your junior and senior seasons with Cal State Fullerton and averaged better than 22 points and 10 rebounds a contest there so great numbers before your college career ended uh, you had guys like Jerry West among others who started scouting your games what are some of the fondest memories you have from your time in college Cedric? Oh, man, I had a blast. It was a great time. When Jerry showed up to the game, it was so funny because I started looking around at my teammates and started looking around at the team that I was playing against and wondering who he was here to see. <laughs> my coach had to bring me to the sideline and, you know, shake me up a little bit, like, wake up, man. He's here to see you, man. Get it together. <laughs> and I just, you know, still didn't believe it. But, you know, it was just funny, you know, after playing for Jerry West when I was with the Lakers, he was a general manager there. Uh, he, he can even, even recall. He said, "Man, I remember I will come and watch you play in that little gym, that little hot gym, and this, that, and, and I was going, "Why? You don't even know, Jerry. I remember you walking in, and the whole place just kind of stopped. And I was looking around. He couldn't believe that I thought he was there for somebody else and not myself. <laughs> That's great. That's a good story. And I believe you had some particularly great games against the UNLV Running Rebels, who obviously featured Larry Johnson and uh, guys of that stature." Yeah, I was real comfortable. I, I was recruited by Las Vegas. I took a trip down there. You know, Tarkanian is a real good friend of mine. He started coaching me, actually. Okay. And when I got out of high school, he wasn't my coach, but he just was watching me play one day and just automatically just started teaching. Like, hey, you need to do this and this, that, and the other. Not knowing that I was, you know, not the player that I was going to be two years later, but, you know, he was just helping me out as a player. And then it's so funny, um, you know, I just felt really comfortable with those guys. I grew up in the same areas as Stacey Augman. We were good friends and uh, kind of cross-town rivals, so to speak. You know, he ended up beating me in the high school championship game. So uh just felt really comfortable, and I knew uh, that they were the top team, not only in our conference, but in the world, you know, when it comes to college basketball. So if I was to do well against them, uh, you know, it's kind of like my achievements uh, in college. And I believe your brother went to Fullerton before you. Did that have a lot of influence on your decision to attend there? A great, great influence because, you know, visiting him on campus, I got to see the the college life and, and what it was all about, you know, where he stayed. I watched some of his practices, some of his games, you know, how they treated the players. So I was very comfortable in making that choice and going to Fullerton. And then, you know, the other schools that recruit me were really big schools, you know, you, like I said, UNLV, uh, UCLA, um, LSU, really big, huge schools. And I didn't, you know, at that time, I didn't think I was that good of a big time player. And I mean, to be on that level, I knew I wanted to have an opportunity. Being going into the NBA was not my goal. My, my opportunity was just to play two years of good college basketball that I had left and hopefully go into radio and television afterwards. So I wanted to play as much as I could. So I knew going to 
UCLA and Las Vegas and, uh, and LSU, that it may be, a, you know, I have to work for that position and it may be a possibility that I may play some, I may play a lot. But going to Cal State Fullerton, they gave me the ball uh, even before I signed. They knew it was going to be my team for two years and uh, I was going to be on the floor as much as possible. So I went for the sure thing. Ah, oh, great. Now, in the 1990 NBA draft, the Phoenix Suns selected you with pick number 48. Uh, how were your emotions as the second round commenced and you were ready to hear your name? Man, I was I was confused. Um, you know, I, I had done great in the camps. I was predicted to be a lottery pick uh, because of my numbers. Uh, but then again, I was I still always had in the back of my mind. I'm still at a small school and uh, not as uh, you know big time as Larry Johnson, Stacey Ogman, and Gary Payton, Derek Coleman, all those guys that went before me. But I knew I could compete with them. So um, telling you going lottery, you want to believe it, but you don't. You're not really too sure. So I just dropped the first round, had a lot of emotions, cried. Uh, my mom, you know, pulled me back in. I was like, hey, this is what you want to do. This, you got to man up and, you know, take the good with the bad. And, you know, just dropped all the way to the second to the last pick. But, you know, as soon as I got selected, I knew I, I was selected to a team that played my type of style and also had an opportunity, you know, maybe not had an opportunity to play, but I was going to have an opportunity to learn from some great veterans, Tom Chambers, Kevin Johnson, uh, Eddie Johnson, uh, Mark West, those guys, Dan Marley. So that's all I really wanted to do, just come in, be in shape, work hard, and try to learn as much as possible. Unfortunately for myself, I only spent my rookie year on the bench, and the second year I was, um, at the end of the season, I was a starter. Yeah, that's great. And as you mentioned, you joined a very talented Phoenix team that was led by coach Cotton Fitzsimmons, and the franchise enjoyed four consecutive 50-win seasons with Cotton. How did you actually find the adjustment from college to in the NBA? Well, it's tough. I mean, it's it's a huge jump from <laughs> from high school to college because all this time is on your hand. And then from college to NBA, now you got even more time on your hands, but you got to manage it well. And, you know, it, it, it's no really time to ha- have errors uh, on the court. You, they, they want you to be at a high level and, and, and professional all the time. And uh, the demands of it is not really time, time consuming, but you know, when it's time for you to play, they want you to focus and be at your best all the time. So that was a difference. You know, mostly in college, you, you can play your way back into, you know, I had a three, four or five game slump. You know, you can play your way back into it in, in the NBA. You know, they want you to play well every game and in games you don't play well, they think something is wrong and somebody else is trying to take your spot. Uh, I'd just like to briefly touch on the slam dunk side of things. Um, in 1991, D Brown from Jacksonville won the contest at All-Star Weekend with his no-look dunk. You went one better in 1992 with the dunk that you called the Hocus Pocus Jam, and you added a blindfold courtesy of teammate um, Thunder Dan Marley. What's your history with creative dunks, and, and how did that opportunity for you to take part in 1992 in Orlando come to be? Well, it's so it's so ironic that that story played out the way it did. Um, the previous year before we were drafted, we were still in college, and they had the college dunk contest. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a champion of that contest, beating D. Brown. And every dunk that I did in that contest, D. Brown did in the NBA dunk contest. Really? Yeah. I mean, I pumped up my shoes. He pumped his shoes up. I covered my eyes. He covered his eyes. Oh, wow. You know, about five or six of his dunks that he won with, he, he stole from me in college when I beat him. That's incredible. I didn't actually realize that was the case. 
Yeah, so so when he got the opportunity to be in a dunk contest and I didn't, I was happy for him. But when I saw him doing all my dunks, I said, okay, he's going to have to give me my credit, which he didn't. Like I said, my rookie year, I didn't play a lot. He was playing for a, a, a weaker team in Boston. They have, they were rebuilding, so he got to play a lot of minutes. He was a higher draft pick. Mm-hmm. He was exposed more, so he, you know, he used it to his best abilities. Everybody take dunks from everybody and make it their own, but – you know, it was ironic because, you know, these dunks that he were doing, nobody had ever seen before. Yeah. Everybody from the Orlando, it was called the Orlando Classic. Everybody from the Orlando Classic was calling me up and was like, yo, he, he, he took all your dunks. Like everything that he did, he pumped your shoe. You did that and he did, and, and then you did this and then he did that. He did all your stuff. I was like, yeah, but I'm not going to say nothing. I'm just going to work hard, get back in the dunk contest and beat him next year. <laughs> You know, yep. you know, and that was my question. It was unfortunately that he was hurt. He couldn't participate in the next one. Uh, but, you know, all the dunks that I did, even in my first dunk contest, it was only one one dunk, one dunk that was done by somebody else. Every other dunk that I did was unique. Nobody has ever even seen before. So I have watched dunk contests for years yep. and recorded them, studied them. I knew exactly what I was doing when I was going in there. I, I knew I had to make my mark. I was going against Larry Johnson, Sean Kemp, all these big name all stars and players, and I knew I had to make my mark some way. Uh, I, I couldn't figure out how I can top my blind dunk that D Brown did in the previous dunk contest until um, Magic Johnson. He was retired and was coming back to play in the All Star game. He was voted in the All Star game to play. He had retired because of the HIV virus, and we were playing the Lakers in the forum. You know, I'm a young guy, so I got there early and was working out, and Magic was working out too. We just started shooting game, and then one thing led to another. We playing one on one, and then uh, you know, after a good workout, we started shooting free throws back and forth. He said, "What you gonna do?" D Brown took it to the whole blind thing, and I didn't really say nothing. That was mine original. I didn't really say nothing, and he was like, "You gonna have to go to a whole new level and just you know really pull something magical out." And so that's when the idea of putting a blindfold on really came about. I went back and started studying with it. Me and the Phoenix Suns gorilla started working on it. Uh, we we're really failing at it. It wasn't looking good, so I was only going to use it if I was eliminated. Okay. In the dunk contest, that's why it was my intention. It's like, okay, I'm about to be eliminated, so I might as well try to do something to save myself. Oh, that's great. I was going to use it then, but I end up winning a dunk contest before I used it. I was already the winner. <laughs> so that was the icing on the cake. This was just the icing on the cake. This was something extra. And I said, go ahead and go for it. So I figure if I made it, great. I mean, you know, it's 20, 25 years later, we're still talking about it. If I would have missed it, I would have missed it really bad. I would have fell all in the people and they would have had to bring a stretcher out. It would have been a really big <laughs> blooper. I would have really played it up. So either way, I, I knew 20, 25 years later, we would still be talking about either the, one of the greatest dunks or one of the biggest bloopers. So I, I was fine with either way. That's fantastic, and I'm so glad I've had the chance to actually ask you about it in person because I've always wondered, even since the uh, early 90s, just after it really happened, um, a whole story behind it. So just to clarify, did you say that D, he actually did give credit in future years or he hadn't really said much publicly about it? No, he still hasn't given credit. Every time I see him, I bring it up. (laughs) Uh, You know, We've been on radio shows together, and I, I, I confront him with it, and he just gets quiet. Like, you know, he doesn't deny it. Yeah. But he doesn't say that. Yeah, I'm absolutely right. So you know, he's gonna take it to his grave, and I'm I'm fine with that. You know, he and I both know, and everybody that was in Orlando at the time when they had the college dunk contest, they know on who's the best dunker out of him and me. Is that the Orlando All Star Classic that you're referring to? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much for clarifying. And I'm trying to get footage on that. 
I know they had it on video, but I'm, you know, me and Pat Williams. Pat Williams was the the vice president and general manager at the time for the Orlando Magic when that happened. We're, we're still trying to find some sort of video of that to prove to everybody that all every one of those dunks that you sent, like, wow, I can't believe he did that and that, and he pumping the shoes up that I did first. Someone's sitting on some very historical footage if they only realized that they actually had it in their possession. So hopefully that does come to be. That'd be awesome. And coincidentally, uh, Dee Brown was actually sitting courtside, well, probably because he won the year before, I guess, next to Magic Johnson at that 92 dunk contest. Did you say anything to him at the time there? I know you pointed towards Magic or Dee. I couldn't tell who it was, but um, how was that sort of seeing Dee there watching you from the sidelines yeah i pointed towards magic and dedicated to him but earlier uh before the dunk contest started in the locker room i told d brown what i was going to do okay and he knew he knew about the blindfold and he was like oh, okay all right i see you i see you <laughs> after he won the dunk contest he knew all the dunks that he did he got from me but you know it is what it is i wasn't gonna harp on it everybody takes dunks from everybody and you know tries to make their own out of it um you know, the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, he knew about it. And then during the broadcast, he was commentating on a dunk contest. You can hear the tone in his voice, just just the hate, just like, <laughs> oh, you know, it, you know, it's a good idea. Like, OK, you know, you see, I, that's when I knew I got him right there. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Absolutely awesome. Uh, now, moving on back to the the regular season prior to the 93 NBA season, your Phoenix Suns made some big changes. Paul Westfall replaced Cotton Fitzsimmons as coach, and then your team moved from Memorial Coliseum to the brand new America West Arena and traded for a guy named Charles Barkley, of course. And before we get to the NBA Finals in 93, I'd I'd just love to hear your take on that transition and the development of your game, because you started almost 50 games in the 93 season and led the whole league in field goal percentage at almost 58%. So can you just talk about that for a moment, please? Yeah, it was just the growth of... um my game like i told you it's just getting better and learning mm-hmm. a lot uh you know when charles barkley at my first two seasons was pretty good but when charles barkley came he, you know uh he really took the pressure uh he really took the edge he really gave us the confidence boost to, to be a dominant team in this league uh, you, you need a superstar on your team in the nba to sway the refs to sway the crowd to, to have somebody double team you know when you have a superstar to have that threat and he's he's as good as Charles Barkley was. It, it takes a lot of pressure off you and off of your team, off of your fans, because he solves a lot of problems. So when he came to the team, it was you know it was it was easy for me. Now I just go out and play my game, move, cut, slash, do everything that I normally do, and uh, you know ended up averaging pretty high points because of, just because of him. Uh, you know our team was growing, our team was getting better. You know we was getting opportunities, and, and but but it just didn't matter because we didn't have that star like. Like Charles was. Don't get me wrong. KJ was star. Tom Chambers was a star. Dan Marley was, but he wasn't a superstar. And Charles Barkley was a superstar that gave us the edge to to play well. Yeah, understood. And you were in a a great first round playoff series in 1993 against the LA Lakers. You dropped the first two games at home, and then Coach Westfall famously declared that the Suns would win the series. And that was one of my favorite quotes ever when he did that at that press conference. And then, which you did go on to do with an overtime victory in the deciding fifth game, what do you recall of that series, and then just the city of Phoenix's expectations of the team? Because you had a really rabid, uh, excitable fan base too. Yeah, I, I, you know, just as Coach Westfall made that prediction, 
we all felt the same. You know, we, we knew this, you know, we, we did a great job in regular season. We ended on a high note by beating Portland in Portland with the buzzer, a shot on the buzzer. We went up to postseason training camp, worked hard, uh, but we just were, we were rusty. And, and the Lakers at that time had nothing to lose. They barely squeaked into the playoffs and they had nothing to lose. And the pressure was on us because we had the best record in the league. We had the, the MVP of the league on our team. We just took two games to shake the jitters off. After we shook the jitters off, our, our third game and our fourth game was a breeze. And then the fifth game is just the same thing. Pressure is back on us because we're the better team. We got the MVP. And the Lakers just played free. They just played free. No pressure at all. Just, you know, that's why I ended up going to overtime. But when in the overtime, the opportunity for us, you know, the better team pulls out. When it mattered the most, you got the job done. Uh, now, in an April game against Sacramento, you hurt your left foot and then you re-injured it in game six of the 1993 Western Conference Finals at Seattle. And then I've since read that that led to surgery that you had on the day of the seventh and deciding game of the series. So therefore, you missed the finals, of course, against Chicago, plus the first 29 games of the 1994 season. This month, it actually is 22 years since those finals. Um, what's your perspective on the team's amazing season which for you, unfortunately, ended at the worst possible time. Yeah, I thought we had a great season. Uh, you know, unbelievable. The fans, the, the the players, the game, the excitement. You know, we just happened to run across uh, uh, the greatest player on earth, Michael Jordan, in the finals. Other than that, then we, you know, we would have a championship ring uh, if, if that guy wasn't playing. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was disappointing for me. Obviously, I played the whole season with my foot broken. All right. You know, it was just the point of when it was going to completely break. Uh, and it just so happens in a bad time for us and for, for a break. And then, uh, you know, tough situation. If I could go back, and I say this all the time, if I could go back and do it again, I would have just took the quarter zone shot and kept playing. Oh, really? Yeah, because I, I had such great numbers against Scottie Pippen. And uh, for us to have that missing piece in the finals against Michael, I would have wondered would it would have been a different outcome. Because my numbers, you know, against Scottie Pippen was, you know, up in the high 30s and the high 10s and 12s of rebounds. I just had great numbers against that guy. And, you know, even to this day when I see him, he's just like, man, I had such a hard time trying to stop you because you just, you move without the ball. You didn't ISO. It's just, you get the shot off so quick. So, I, you know, it might have been a different outcome. It may have been Michael's one and only time that he lost in, in the NBA finals, but who knows? But, you know, it, it worked out, you know, I guess perfectly for on his side. <laughs> But for us, it's just, you know, one of the things that you, you, you just run with. I mean, we, we set a record. I don't think anybody has had over half a million people at their parade for losing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, we lost, we lost the championship and we had 600,000 people at our parade. Even having a parade for us losing, you know, that's unheard of. But to have 600,000 people, that's people win championships and don't have that many people at their parade. So that just goes to show how exciting the season was, how great the fans of Arizona and the worldwide just was behind us and want us to win. It wasn't a, a, a good guy, bad guy sort of thing because everybody loved Michael, but, uh, and everybody hated Charles and he's so outrageous. He's so, you know, comical and controversy, but. Uh, you know, just to have the fans and supporters like that was just amazing. Yeah, Phoenix definitely had great supporters, still still do to this day, but in the late 80s, early 90s, the era where I'm most uh, fascinated with, you had some fantastic support. Um, now, Charles Barkley actually was quoted as saying, I think just after the finals, if we had Cedric for the finals, we would have won the world championship. 
that says a great deal. And of course, it makes perfect sense, of course, that you were unfortunately sitting at the sidelines. What was your actual involvement with the team throughout the finals? I tried to just give my insight. I started working on uh, television, doing television commentating and, and sideline reporting, uh, you know, while I was out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's really nothing. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't help out. I can cheer. I can encourage. But it, it was really nothing that I could, could do, you know, with a cast on my foot. <laughs> now, game six of the finals ended with KJ's shot being blocked by uh, Chicago's Horace Grant, which gave the Bulls their first three-peat. Just watching from the sidelines and seeing that final play unfold and then the realization that the championship dream had come to an end, at least for that season, what were your thoughts on the closing moments of the series? It was kind of tough because um, we we struggled. We had a three-overtime game in Chicago. You know, they, they were going to riot when Chicago won the championship in Chicago. We ended up not letting them win. Uh, we, we took two games in Chicago, so we had a better feeling. Uh, we just kind of considered it to be in the same scenario as it was for the first-round playoff series against the Lakers, just us having the jitters the first two games at home, being such a big big stage that none of us had ever been before. Mm-hmm. I think Danny Ainge was the only player who has been to the finals on our team. You know, we just let it get to us, and once we went to Chicago and got away, calmed down, then we started playing our game, and we knew we could beat them. Uh, but when we came back home, obviously, you know, we played well and you know, up to the last minute. We played, you know, 40, 47 great minutes of basketball. And that last minute, you know, Michael just drove to the basket full length, got the easy layup. And then uh, we made a mistake of uh, trying to steal the basketball and left John Paxson wide open. For, and, and he had the big enough uh, cojones to go ahead and shoot a three instead of trying to get a layup. And, you know, he knocks it down. Uh, and then it's still disappointing at the end that we didn't, you know, get the shot that we wanted. Ended up getting blocked by Horace. But, you know, great series, great opportunity for us, disappointing for us. And uh, just tried to regroup and never never could get that chemistry back that we had that first year. A flurry of emotions, I guess, in the final moments. Um, in uh, September of 1994, you were traded to the LA Lakers for a first-round draft pick that turned out to be Michael Finley. What did you actually make of the trade to LA and the opportunities that presented by returning back to uh, California? Well, at the time, I didn't pay no attention to what I got traded for or who or what. <laughs> yeah, I just was excited to go back home. I was I was nervous to come home. I was disappointed that I was leaving a team that I thought, you know, I, I had gotten so much better from my first year playing with Charles to my second year. I started off, I missed on, I think, like thirty games of the season. And then the rest of the way on, I really, you know, became an, you know, a so-called all-star from the rest of the way on. Uh, I think the last part of the season, I was averaging more than 20 points a game, being our second leading scorer, our second leading rebounder. So the tandem Batman and Robin with me and Charles was really growing. So I knew me coming into that next season, uh, 94-95, I would be fully healthy. I didn't have to rehab half of the season. I was I was going to go to training camp and geared up and ready to go. So when the trade happened, I, I just continued to work hard. And I even worked harder knowing that I was going to a team that was, you know, at the bottom of the barrel. You know, Magic had retired and, mm-hmm. um, you know, James Worthy was getting older and, and the, the players were just not there anymore. Byron Scott had left to go to Indiana. Um, so, you know, their championship pedigree, Pat Riley was gone, was just not there anymore. And they were rebuilding. Uh, so, you know, fortunate for my, myself, I got to walk into a situation like I did with Cal State Fullerton where they just handed me the basketball and said, go, you are a leader. Let's see what you can do with it. 
But in this scenario, I had a great guard, Nick Van Exel, who was uh, on a mission to prove everybody that he wasn't a second-round pick. I had a guy by the name of Eddie Jones who we drafted who was on a mission to prove that he was a lottery pick and just not a first-round pick. You know, Vladi Divox and Eldon Campbell, Anthony Peeler, uh, you know, the veteran play of Sam Bowie being a star for so long in his career and getting injured and having the knowledge to help others. It was just perfect. Jerry West just kind of plucked himself into a great way uh, to, to put some great people together. And I played, you know, all I had to do was just do what I do best. And just, I just had more opportunity, you know, in Phoenix, you know, had to, the ball had to go to Charles and then the KJ and then the Dan and then the Tom. And then it got to me hmm. out of all of that. And I still averaged 20 plus points. I said, man, if the ball is coming through me first, there's no telling what I was going to do. So I, I just took off and ran with it. Everybody kind of jumped on board, and we all just participated in trying to help each other out, you know, knowing that we were coming in the arenas as an underdog and with no regard to anybody. Just, you know, who cares if they're the big bad wolf? We're just going to come in like three little pigs and play our butts off. I love it. I love hearing these recollections of uh, players' careers. So, yeah, thanks for sharing these with us. Uh, your your first season in LA, uh, you were named to the 1995 All-Star team. The game took place at your previous home in the city of Phoenix there, led by your former coach, Paul Westfall. Unfortunately, you missed the game due to, I think it was a hand injury or thumb surgery yeah. just days prior, and you were replaced by Dikembe Mutombo. Can you just describe the feeling of being named an All-Star and recognized for your great play, but having to, to miss the game due to injury? Wow, so many emotions in that, that week. You know, being named to the All-Star Reserve was unbelievable. I had no idea. I was shocked. My coach, Dale Harris, called me early that morning that the list came out. I wasn't even looking to be on the list. I just thought it was so far-fetched and unheard of. I wasn't even looking to be on the list. He called me early that morning, woke me up, and told me. I just, I, It still really didn't set in. Then he made the announcement after shoot-around, and it still didn't really kick in. I just, just couldn't believe it. And then, unfortunately... You know, the disappointment of not being played. You know, like I said, I was excited and I was disappointed and I was also frustrated and upset that the person who hurt me gets to replace me in the All-Star game. You know, Dikembe came down and hit me and it injured me and then he gets to replace me. It was a little difficult to just swallow that. Um, I, w- I was happy that I was going back to Phoenix. To, you know, hey, you guys didn't want me. And look, I, w- I told you I was going to become an All-Star. He's probably just stay one more year. It was just gratifying. It was fun. It was entertaining. It was great to see all, you know, familiar faces. But it was also kind of good to, you know, hey, I told you I was good. Just kind of show them this is what we missed out on. Yeah, totally understandable. And just briefly there, I didn't actually realize the history of how the injury actually came about. Was it through you got hacked or something went a bit too far? What sort of happened there? Yeah, we were playing Denver at home in the forum. He just hacked me, just came down extremely hard on on a pass. Really didn't have nothing to do with the play. And, um, you know, yeah, he just, you know, he split the ligament on my thumb, you know, with those hard African bones that he has. And um, I ended up not being in the play. And it's, it's funny because when the team was announced, he was complaining. He was in the press complaining. You know, defense, they don't they don't honor defense. They don't think you if you play defense, you can become an all-star, that whole thing. And then, you know, he goes out and takes out an all-star and moves himself on in. So I think he was quoted as saying something like the NBA can go to hell or something like that. Yeah. Um, so obviously he was uh, yeah, upset about not being given the nod in the first instance. Now, moving on to something a bit more uh, upbeat, you had two full seasons with the Lakers, your two best scoring seasons where you averaged over 21 points a game. And you had a career-high 50 points against the Minnesota Timberwolves in LA. 
you hit a, a really long three that brought up your 50th point with a few seconds left. Does that game still reside within your memory bank? Oh, yeah. And a lot of people, they remember it and they tell me about it. Hey, I was there or I saw that game. And, you know, so huge. And I had all the credit is due to my teammates, man. They, I, I am not a guy who can isolate and go one on one all day. They made extra passes that day that were just unbelievable. Nick, uh, I think had 12 to 15 assists. Vladi had 10, 10 assists himself. Eldon, everybody was just moving the ball. It just happened to end up in my hands. Uh, you know, most of my points were mostly layups. <laughs> I just was, you know, just one of those days where the ball was finding its way to me and I was putting them back and, you know, ending it the way I ended it. It had nothing to do with me. That was all the basketball gods making that whole night exciting. That was such a great finish. And in the show notes to this episode, I'll include the YouTube links to where that game is online and it's just some great moments and particularly when you hit that last shot to get the 50th point the crowd was so pleased your teammates were absolutely loving it you were so excited so really great to to watch that sort of stuff even you know 20 years later yeah. uh now you played for LA at a really interesting stage as you were talking about it was in the post showtime era yet uh midway through the 1996 season Magic Johnson returned to the NBA uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think yourself and Nick Van Exel were the co-captains of the Lakers at that stage. How did you feel that the team adjusted to having Magic back and then the spotlight again becoming really large on the LA Lakers, even more than it already was? It was an uphill battle. You know, you got to rewind even back further. My first year with the Lakers when James Worthy retired right after training camp after his mom passed away. That was a big blow to us because... You know, James been there, done that. We were just a young pups coming in and we kind of got under his umbrella and he was kind of showing us the way. Mm-hmm. When he retired, we, we kind of came to each other and said, you know, that was the last part of the Showtime era that was physically on the court with us, you know, and he retired. I think we need to honor what they have done, but we need to make a, a team and a, and a new statement on who we are and how we are. So we stopped calling ourselves the new showtime or what have you. And we switched it around and call ourselves the Lake show. And when we did that, that's when we made the commitment to each other. We knew we were missing that. We took the Spurs to the brink of almost eliminating them. And then we, we just didn't have the knowledge uh, to take us over the hump. Earlier that year, we started asking magic because he would come play with us in the summer. He would come pray with us during practice. We, we started asking magic, would he come back? You know, there's a possibility he come back. You know, you, you know, you're looking healthier. You're looking good. You're playing with your, your traveling team. You know, you know, come back and give us that knowledge, you know, to get us over that hump. We got the talent. You know, it's like what Charles gave us. And when I was in Phoenix, that superstar that we can stick our chest out. We know everything is going to be all right because he's a problem solver. It was great. You know, he came in. We, we won tremendous amount of games. We had the motivation. We, you know, we were going into the playoffs playing well. But then when things started to get rough, we all grew up watching Magic. So we we kind of just gave him the ball and like, hey, get us out of this jam, mm-hmm. you know. But it wasn't the same Magic that we watched as a kid and a young Magic and that can go out and score 30 and give 25 assists and, you know, 18 rebounds. That wasn't that Magic. But we needed to help him. You know, I needed to be James Worthy for Magic and Nick needed to be Byron Scott for Magic and Eddie needed to be Michael Cooper for Magic and, you know, Vladi needed to be the Kareem for Magic and on and on and on. But we weren't there. We didn't show up for him. And that was the disappointing part about it when I look back on it. Like we had a chance to win a championship with one of the best players ever to do it. And we didn't show up like Worthy and, and Scott and Cooper and Abdul Jabbar showed up for Magic. 
That's a great way to look at it with those comparisons. Yeah, thanks for the uh, honesty there. This next question will be a little bit controversial, but I have to ask, five minutes before a regular season game at the Forum, your Lakers refused to enter the locker room. There were cameras everywhere. And then you said to Coach Del Harris, and I quote, there's got to be germs in there or something. Now, I should add, of course, this took place in the iconic 1996 movie Space Jam. How was that experience of actually being in the film and playing a role there in that uh, incredible movie, Space Jam? At the time, you didn't know how huge it was. Yeah. Because, you, you know, you, yeah, hey, they want you to come do this, and you come down into the to arena, and you film it, and you're cool. But when the finished product came out, and man, just from a kid growing up, you ask anybody in the world, have you ever been in a movie, or have you ever been seen with Bugs Bunny? <laughs> Daffy Duck, I mean, Elmer Fudd, on and on. Like, it's like, I'm in a movie, regardless of how big or small the role is, yeah. I'm in a movie that's going to play on forever. They have been watching Pinocchio. Pinocchio was the first Disney movie made. They still watch Pinocchio to this day. Mm-hmm. So I'm in a movie with Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny has been living on for 50 plus years. He's going to continue to live on, <laughs> on and on. And kids, when I'm dead and gone, are going to watch this Bugs Bunny movie. That's the biggest achievement that's going to last forever. They still may talk about the blindfold. They still may talk about 50 points. But being in a movie with Bugs Bunny, huge, huge, huge. I have kids. I don't even tell them I'm in the movie. I just let them watch the movie because they want to watch. They see Michael <laughs> Jordan. They see Bugs Bunny. They want to watch the movie. I pop up in the movie, and I am the greatest dad in the world <laughs> because I'm in a movie with Bugs Bunny. It doesn't get any better than that. You know, even to this day, you know, my youngest, he's nine, you know, he watches Space Jam and can't believe it. And even my friend's kids, and they don't even know me as a basketball player. They know me as a guy that was in the movie with Bugs Bunny. <laughs> they have never seen my games and probably will never see my games. But I'm in the movie with Bugs Bunny. That's all that matters. That's fantastic. There was uh, Del Harris. You had Vladi Divac, um, Anthony Pig Miller. Yes. Uh, a couple of other guys were around there. Do you recall the filming of that particular scene? And I think at the end, Del Harris, he persuaded you guys to wear gas masks and dress for the game in the hallway. So just classic stuff. Yes. I remember it so vividly. But like I said, when it was going on, obviously, you know, the part where Bugs Bunny was there was not being filmed. But then, you know, while they were filming that, you know, Michael had the Jordan Dome and he would, you know, after filming every day, he would come play with us and work out and get his game back. You know, being on the set of Warner Brothers, being around the writers and the directors and the, and the cartoon illustrators, just a huge feeling, man. Just, just, just great. He's speechless. Uh, now, you mentioned the Jordan Dome there. I can't let that one go. There's very limited footage of those uh, very famous talked about games at the Jordan Dome during the filming of Space Jam. Um, do you mind just talking a little bit about some of the atmosphere and the players that were involved? I know, you know, the late Jack Haley was involved. You had a whole cast of characters. Reggie Miller, I'm pretty sure, was in amongst there. And you had greats of the game taking part in this modified, for Jordan's sake, arena. How, how did that sort of come to be and you're part of that as well? Well, like I said, you know, Jordan uh, had retired and came back and to his standard. He had a subpar uh, season, you know, ending toward Orlando Magic, mm-hmm. uh, didn't get to the finals. So he wanted to get himself back to Jordan ability to where he can play and participate on, on his level. Um, so he had already signed a contract with Warner Brothers to do the movie as a retired player. But when he was coming back, he went to back to him and said, hey, I need this facility because uh, I need, you know, after I finish film and I don't need to be far away from the gym, I need to get straight in the gym and start working. And and to be on set for, you know, from four o'clock in the morning 
until 3 p.m. In, in the evening and then go straight from the set to play against the top NBA players in the world and played as well as he played, it, it's unbelievable, man. You, you can't compare it to what, you know, it's, just, it's ridiculous. I mean, we sat around all day, some by the pool, some off by the beach in California. It was in Hollywood, so, you know, we chilling, not doing nothing. That dude's on the set all day with Bugs Bunny and green screening and doing all this. Take three, take 37. All right, let's do it again. Make up here. You know, all right, make sure the sound man is right for, for 12 plus hours. And then he comes and plays with us, lift weights, plays with us, trains. It's just like, man, this dude's just unbelievable. Like, he's not even, even human. But like Michael Jordan, as you said, Reggie Miller, Magic Johnson, Dennis Rodman. That's right. Scotty Pittman, Eddie Jones. Oh, man. On and on and on. Reggie Theus. Uh, Pooh Rich. I mean, on and on and on. All the top players came through. Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, all of them came through to participate and play, man. And it's just shirts and skins. Let's play. The elite people would have their courtside seats. They're priceless. Yeah, you know, definitely. Knowing allowed a certain amount of people in, but the people that came in, they had courtside seats right there, and they, they lined them up on both sides, and you got to see pure, no referee, no no 20,000 people, no cameras, no interviews, none of that, just pure, straight-up Michael Jordan and the greatest basketball players on, on the planet at that time go go at it for, for blood, sweat, and tears. Oh, fantastic stuff. Now, in early 1997, the Lakers sent you, along with Romeo Robinson, to Phoenix in exchange for Robert Ory and Joe Klein. What was it feeling like returning back to Arizona? It, it was a bittersweet thing because I didn't want to leave L.A. I wanted to stay in L.A. Um, at the time when I got traded, I hadn't played. I was injured, so I hadn't played yet. Uh, so I was anxious to come back. I had rehab and got back strong I, I, the week before I was traded. I just got back and cleared to practice. And then to get traded was really tough. But again, I was working on after coming back from rehab. So I was in shape. I was ready to go eager to play. And the Suns at the time, it was kind of the reversal team. You know, with the Lakers, we shined Shaquille. We, we, we traded Vladi for Kobe Bryant. We had expectations to win championships, at least contend for the championships, being one of the elite teams. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I get traded to a team that's at the bottom. The Suns had, I think they had lost 14 straight games in a row. I think it was like the 15th game. They were like 1-15. And I saw it as another challenge. As soon as I got to the arena, they had a game that day. Uh, I flew in. I got in at halftime, and all the guys were sitting in the locker room. And I walked in and said, what's up? Y'all ready to go to the playoffs? <laughs> and, and, you know, they was like, you know, looking at me like, what are you talking about, man? We 1-14 right now. I'm like, we're going to the playoffs, man. Don't worry. I got this. Don't even worry about it. Jason Kidd was hurt at the time. After they went back out to play, we had a conversation in the locker room uh, before going to sit on the bench. And we made up our mind that we're going to put this team in the playoffs. Like, like Jason, you haven't been to the playoffs yet. I've been there. Trust me. It's like no other. And I'm, I'm here now. I'm going to get in game shape. You get better. You'll be back in maybe five or six games. I'll hold the fort down until you get back. Together, we're going to put this team in the playoffs. That's exactly what happened. We end up, you know, losing to Seattle, but we were at the bottom. You know, it hasn't been done again. You know, a team being one and fourteen and then making the playoffs. And I'm not talking about barely making the playoffs. We were like the sixth seed. Like we really made the playoffs, like a legitimate team. So ultimate turnaround right there again. You know, it, it was I was sad to see leave home and Tinseltown, and you know, knowing that they was probably going to win a championship with Shaquille and Kobe and the rest of those guys, but. The, the opportunity was for myself and had a great feeling to, to, to resurrect that Phoenix Suns team back to, to where they were when I left. 
It was a great fight back after that really terrible start for the team to that season, as you mentioned. And I think you took the Sonics to a deciding fifth game as well. So you're awfully close to getting even into the second round. Um, now, in February of 98, Phoenix traded you to Dallas in return for Dennis Scott. And the 1998 Mavericks went 20-62. and 62. It was the first time that you'd experienced a considerably bad losing season. Uh, you had two full seasons with the Mavs. What did you make of the time spent in Dallas there, Cedric? Well, uh, I spent three years in Dallas, and two of them I was injured. I only played some, maybe 20 games each season. So it was real disappointing because of injuries. Um, it was just, it was real hard, man, because they were they were rebuilding, and I had never been a part of a team that was going into the rebuilding stage uh, like they were. I mean, just really not worried about wins, you know, not developing, not getting the players that – uh, that were already playing there better. They were trying to get the players that weren't that good, develop them to get better. So, you know, tough scenario. At the same time, uh, understanding that, you know, that, that, you know, it's a business and you got to adjust with the, with the business and, you know, go accordingly to how they want to run things. Uh, I got the opportunity to get out of there, but, you know, it was to another losing franchise I wasn't concerned about winning, which was Detroit. And I knew it was the last year of my contract, and I had to get out of there to go to Miami. You know, I had the opportunity to play with Pat Riley, which is childhood dream, and uh, be with a great team that wanted to compete for a championship and, and play hard. First time playing in the Eastern Conference, so it was a little new adjustment for me. But I thought I did well, and um, that was it. Yeah, you're only uh, 31 years old during your final NBA season. And then you played in some various leagues around America. And I didn't actually know this. You joined the Harlem Globetrotters for a little while as well and then played professionally overseas for a bit too. Leaving the NBA and then even that time with the Globetrotters and some of your later career opportunities, sort of what do you make of those looking back now? Man, it was tough. Um, me being so young, leaving the league, my quest was to win a championship. I got a lot of offers from, from really bad teams. I had my opportunity to play with bad teams with, when I was with Dallas that didn't want to win. Now having a bad team that wants to win like Phoenix, when I went back to Phoenix, you know, the team was bad. They wanted to win. They just couldn't put it together. It's a little different yeah. than playing with a team that is a bad team and they don't want to win. I didn't want to be in a rebuilding stage. So if I didn't have an opportunity to play with a contender or a team that wanted to win a championship, I turned those offers down and I said, all right, 11 years, great years. Let's see what the world has to offer. Visit a couple of countries, Russia, Israel, um, Japan, um, Philippines. Uh, got to travel with the Globetrotters, have some fun, be entertaining. I'm always a big fan of them. You know, another childhood dream, being a Globetrotter. Yeah. That was huge. You know, it's amazing what they do. It's amazing the people that they touch. Uh, didn't Never got an opportunity to see them live, but I watched them all the time on television when they came on ABC and loved every minute of it. And, and playing with them was just, man, just a dream come. Just putting that red, white, and blue jersey on every night, you know, sometimes two games a day, just gave you vibrance and made you, you know, you had the competitive edge, but you also wanted to entertain. You you looking at kids in the stands with their, their parents, thinking about, man, I, that was me. I was a kid thinking, wow, how do they do those tricks? And how do they do this? And, oh, that's an unbelievable shot. And this, man, it was just the greatest feeling in the world. It was one of the top feelings of my basketball career, man, just – being able to put those jerseys on them, putting a Laker jersey on, a Globetrotter jersey on, unbelievable. I mean, just it's just speechless, man. Just, just, just great feelings, great opportunities, and uh, you know. And then had an opportunity to come back with the Phoenix Suns and work with them, and uh, jumped at the chance. 
to stay, you know, kind of connected to the game. Just some fantastic memories there, and um, great to hear that you hold them so close to your heart, of course. Now, I'm very respectful of your time, so I, I just have a, a couple of quick questions before we wrap things up, and thanks very much for taking the time to talk. Um, Basketball Digest, they used to have a, a regular feature which was called The Game I'll Never Forget. Is there a single game from your career that springs to mind? Wow. Might be a bit tough to narrow down to one. <laughs> yeah, that's that's um – there's a stretch of games where I was completely on, I thought was on fire when I was in Phoenix, you know, and Charles Barkley was uh, hurt. Kevin Johnson was hurt. Uh, Danny Ainge was hurt. And I carried the team through like four games against Chicago, against Boston, against New York, against top teams, against Detroit. You know, uh, that stretch of games, just unbelievable. That's, that's probably my, you know, those four games when those guys were out and, uh, they had to rely on myself and Dan Marley for wins and losses, which was just unbelievable. Um, you know, playing against Michael, playing against Scotty, playing against uh, Patrick Ewan and his Knicks, his tough Knicks team, playing against Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, and his tough Detroit Pistons teams in Boston uh, with the tough teams that they had with Bird and Parrish and McHale and them. That, that, just, that just topped it all off, man. Just having four games, just unbelievable uh, play out of myself. Oh, that's great to hear. Do you have a favorite arena that you ever played in? Oh, I love playing in, in the fabulous form. Yeah. That, that place was so great. I love playing there. I love playing in the Madhouse and McDowell. Uh, that's Phoenix Suns' uh, old arena. Uh, those two places were similar. They were really close-knit arenas and, you know, gave you a feel of, uh, you know, that you were connected to the fans. Now, you know, the arenas are so huge and now so big, it's kind of hard to, you know, have an arena that's really that close. But those two are really good. Um, uh, Madison Square Garden, obviously the Mecca in New York City and in uh, Boston Garden. The old Boston Garden was unbelievable too. Great arenas, no doubt. Now, uh, in uh, college, I believe you wore number 31. And then for most of your NBA career, number 23 was your primary number. Uh-huh. Is there any particular relevance to those digits? Uh, 31, I, I wore... Well, we just back it up a little bit. I was a, I was a huge fan of George Gerving as growing up, me and my brother both. I played on most of the teams with him. So obviously he was the older player and the better player. So he got 44 and I got 31 because it equaled four. Three plus one equals four. <laughs> That's great. So I wore that and, and he wore that at Cal State Fullerton. So I wore it at Ventura because I wanted to match his number. And then uh, when I went to Fullerton, I just kept the number. And then uh, going into the NBA, I still wanted number 31, but Kurt Rambis was on our team, and obviously he made that number so famous, and he was wearing it. So I couldn't wear that one. I chose number eight because eight is two fours. Four plus four equals eight. (laughs) So in the summer league, I wore number eight, but then I didn't know when the regular season came about that Eddie Johnson had number eight. He wore number eight on his jersey. (laughs) So I had to give that up. And uh, I was happened to be in the locker room, and I, I was looking at my first rookie card. I had never seen my rookie card, and I saw my rookie card. This is before I even played the game. And they were like, okay, Eddie got that. You can't have what number do you want? And I turned the card over, and it was a number 23 card, the 23rd one. So I said, you know, number 23. You know, obviously Michael was huge with number 23. And, you know, at the time, I didn't think I was going to last as long in the league. So I figured, why not get the best player's number with my name on the back, even though it's a different jersey, and, I, you know, I have some great memorabilia. So it just kind of stuck. You know, <laughs> that's so good. It kind of stuck. I love that. Thanks for sharing the story behind that. It's uh, always fascinates me as to 
a lot of players do tend to have some sort of relevance with their jersey selections, and that's another one of the great stories I've heard behind the scenes. So thank you. Now, you seem to be as busy these days as you were at the height of your NBA playing career. We've touched on your love for music. Uh, I believe you've got your own foundation, the Cedric Sabalos Foundation. What other yes. interests do you have these days as well, Ced? Well, right now uh, I have a, a basketball that I created to help kids out. Uh, that I push through my foundation. It's, it's a basketball that it whistles to make sure your your rotation and your and your shot is good. So it's good for training kids and also people who want to start shooting jump shots to get their rotation right, so they can have a nice sweet touch around the basket in long range. And then also, um, I just launched a business, the, the Stream World, who's streaming movies and television shows, music and sports live through your internet through a um, a box. So um, you know, I'm kind of busy with those two things right now, uh, trying to get those two off the ground, um, you know, and just continue to be the, my number one priority of the best dad I can be. Yeah, understandably. Uh, in the show notes of this episode, I'll include some links to some of those things that you've talked about as well, so people can check those out also. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having a chance to speak with you today. I want to thank Paul Corliss and the Retired Players Association for helping set this up. Thanks again for making yourself available and uh, all the best in the future, Said. It's such a privilege talking to you, Adam, and uh, good luck to, uh, with the rest of the season. I hope the Australian guy comes out and, and, and wins another another big game so they can win a championship in Cleveland. Yeah, well, thank you. And just, just quickly, uh, Game 4 is literally 40 minutes away as we record this. Uh, Matthew Dallavadova, of course, you're referring to. Andrew Bogut, of course, is uh, the opposing centre for the Warriors. So just quickly, what's your take on where the finals are heading in the last three or four games we've got left? I think it's great. I think it's a great opportunity for both players, uh, you know, Bogus and also Deladova. They, they both have intensities. They both have great skills. They both bring a lot to their team. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of history. So I'm, I'm going to go with Cleveland on this because I want, you know, I really want that city and what LeBron has done. I just think he's an unbelievable player and his role players are just stepping up, you know, well. But the offensive power of, of Golden State is still dangerous dangerous enough where they can get on fire and win three games and win this championship so if Cleveland doesn't come to play going to be some tough games coming up but I hope Cleveland wins and uh you know Bogans and Noelas Del Dover play well yeah indeed and if you see my old teammate Chris Anstey out there tell him I said hello well I'm glad you actually mentioned that because I was respectful of your time so I didn't want to go into it too much but you did play with Chris Anstey in Dallas and uh do you have any quick memories at all about spending time or having an Australian on the roster he was one of the nicest guys on the team. He always worked hard, stayed professional. He always kept a good attitude. You know, unfortunately, he didn't, you know, blossom to be the best player that they thought that Don Nelson and little Don Nelson thought he was going to be. Uh, but he was effective, had a dangerous shot, really long, and, and, and the ability to compete. You know, he had some games out there where he really showed some great flashes of being, you know, one of the best players in the league, but uh, just couldn't put it together. And that's the tough thing about playing for team. You know, don't want to win. You don't get the full potential of guys, uh, especially like Chris, who are developing and to become a great player because they don't ingrain priority. They just say, all right, well, you'll get better. All right, you'll get better. So they don't really push responsibility uh, on you. Uh, they just say, hey, next time, next time, next time. But, you know, when you come to winning team, it's a demand to play well and play well now each and every time. So I think if you would have went to a championship caliber team, he would have been a different player and, and would have been in the league for for a long, long time. Now I actually think about it. Chris and yourself played in a great game against the Chicago Bulls. I think you took them to overtime and beat them in Dallas. You might have actually even hit a sideline three-pointer 
uh, in the closing minutes of the fourth quarter to, I think, get the overtime period started. You had a great fight back, I think, to, to then win in overtime. Is that a game that springs to mind at all? Yeah, that's one of the hugest games, uh, you know, another big game of my career, uh, being that that was Michael Jordan's last regular season loss in a Bulls uniform. Uh, and I was happy to give him that, <laughs> uh, you know, a <laughs> uh, great, great opportunity for us in the city of Dallas, uh, even the franchise, you know, Mark Cuban had taken over at the time and, uh, it was a big game for us. You know, you know, Dennis Rodman coming home, he's from Dallas. So that was, that was huge. And just, you know, Michael Scotty, Phil Jackson, the whole Chicago mystique was just, you know, anytime they come in anybody's arena, it's a big game. So, being able to hit the shot to send it to overtime and then playing really well against another time. I told you I played so wet, great against Scottie Pippen. And uh, for us to get that win was big. Yeah, definitely, especially in a season where you didn't have a lot of great uh, moments overall as a team. So that would have been a, an uplifting moment for sure. Yeah. All right, well, thanks again, Cedric, and uh, all the best. And I hope that we can perhaps chat again at some stage in the future. All right, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. Suggest topics or guests you want to hear conversations with. Leave a voicemail. Simply visit inolandis.com slash voice. Click start recording. Leave a message and press stop. You can even listen back before submitting. Press send and you're done. Time to share some amazing feedback from a fan of the show. A huge thanks to Tars4. Now, I know that's not his real name. In this review, he mentions the name Aaron and Aaron is a great mate of mine who is the co-host of the NB85 series that we've been doing in allandis.com slash NB85, where we cover the 1985 NBA season, which of course was also Michael Jordan's rookie season. It's from the Australian iTunes store. It is titled Simply the Best, and it reads as follows. As a 38-year-old man who fell in love with the NBA at the start of the 1989 season, and that's when the ABC here in Australia would show abridged versions of games, Finding this podcast was like finding a path leading back to some of my fondest memories of adolescence. Many people in my age group realized just how incredibly lucky we were to follow the career of the greatest player in basketball history as it happened. He was simply a stunning athlete and competitor to watch. And I don't care what anybody says, the basketball was amazing. As I've gotten older, I've lost contact with many of my basketball-loving friends. As a result, I have no outlet for my basketball passion. I tried chatting with my wife about it <laughs> and received nothing but, nothing but the thousand-yard stare. But finding the In All Anus podcast has filled the gap perfectly. Listening to Adam, Aaron, and the guests banter in such a relaxed yet very informed, researched, and professional manner feels just like an extended conversation with fellow basketball tragics. It's awesome. I'll often download the latest episode and listen to it either walking the dog, running on the treadmill, or listening on the stereo <laughs> in my bulldozer. Uh, that's a good image. The slightly obscure guest choices have proven to be golden. I never in a million years thought some of the lesser known names to appear on the podcast would enthrall me as much as they have. Not only is this podcast entertaining, but there is so much to learn about the game and the era that we love. I feel so much more well-rounded in my knowledge base thanks to Adam. Well done. Please keep up the good work. I will continue to spread the word around about this podcast. I think it's the very least I can do in return for the hours upon hours of listening pleasure that you've given me. Thanks, Adam. Wow. Now, Tars4, you must reach out to me, please. Contact me through Twitter or via the Facebook page, whatever it may be. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for that incredible review. Can't thank you enough. Now, worldwide, the show currently has 52 reviews, 49 on iTunes and 3 on Stitcher. 
Thanks for your continued support. If you add a review, I'd love to also read it out on a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are definitely one of the best ways you can support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell your basketball-loving friends about it. Your word-of-mouth recommendations are worth their weight in gold, and it's one of the key ways that can help increase the listenership of the show. You can subscribe to my show in various ways. iTunes, visit inallairness.com slash review. Add it to your Stitcher playlist, inallairness.com slash Stitcher. You can also subscribe on Pocket Casts, Player FM, TuneIn Radio, and other podcatchers. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.